thank you for this special delight and treat to be with you on this very, very momentous uh, weekend in which you're celebrating what God has done in your midst. And uh, a delight also to be with your pastor and with his wife, who is the uh, very best decision he ever made uh, when he married uh, Gail. And that, too, is also delightful. And to hear that he does expository preaching. I was back at Trinity, and they had invited me back about... Uh, Oh, eight years ago, and we had 30 pastors in a demon course. Now, you must say that carefully. D-men, not demon, but D-men, doctor of ministry course. And I was telling them we've got to have expository preaching. It is really the missing ingredient in most churches today. They're not growing because they're not in the Word of God. That's where the authority is. And I said, you take at least one paragraph, at least a paragraph of text, because that's a unit of thought, uh, or in a narrative, a scene, or in poetry, a strophe. And from that, you get both the shape of the message and the content of the message. Well, I'd worked up a sweat in the first hour. There were 29 more lectures to come. 30 pastors from 17 different denominations and uh, with an average experience about 12 years of preaching. And we went to lunch. I was late getting in line, and they were all up in front of me. They didn't see me get in line. But I heard one pastor about seventh up in row, as I recall, and he said, I think I'm going to like this class. Well, there's enough depravity in my soul. I listened up. He's going to like this class, you know. And then he went on to say, but it's all new to me. He said, I've never heard this before. He said, this suppository preaching is brand new. <laughs> there was a man needed a lot of preparation. Well, at any rate, uh, <laughs> it's a delight to share this exposition from Jeremiah chapter 32. And what a great text it is. It is on the name of our God, which is wonderful. Uh, or if you like it in German, wunderbar. Uh, this is his name twice. It says verse 17, and the Lord repeats it in verse 27. I am the Lord. The God of all mankind is anything too wonderful for me. Is anything too miraculous for me? Is anything too difficult for me? Is anything too, all those impossible for me? All those are legitimate translations. We sing, his name is wonderful, his name is wonderful, Jesus my Lord. And it is, because that name summarizes his character. The name of God expresses not only his character and his vocables, but you have all these names. He is creator, he is healer, he is redeemer, and then all of his attributes too. He is eternal, he knows everything, he's omniscient, he is all-powerful, he is omnipotent, and on and on they go. But his name also stands for his doctrine. Jesus said in John 17 or in Psalm 22, I've taught them 
your name. He didn't tell his disciples, say Elohim. They said Elohim. Jesus said, well, that's finished. I've taught them the name. No, no. The name stood for the doctrines of our Lord. So not only are the doctrines, but his ethics too. In Micah and in Amos, they walked in the name of the Lord. That doesn't mean they put down Adonai and Yahweh and Elohim and walked on them. No, no. The character, the reputation, all that God stood for, therefore embodied who he was. And that's why in the third commandment, it is not just cussing that it talks about, do not take the name Lord God in vain, but it is any kind of weak use of God's name that doesn't reflect the majesty of his person and his character. Marge knows what comes next if she were here, my wife. This is story number 21. We were just married in city of brotherly shove, love, uh, in Philadelphia. And there we were. Uh, I was going to take her back to the Midwest, to Wheaton. And her mother was worried. She had grown up hearing about Al Capone, but he had long since left that area. But her mother thought I'd bring her back air-conditioned, uh, you know, with a Tommy gun. And that, uh, therefore, uh, she was entrusting her daughter to the Wild West. But I assured her that would not be so. Well, we went back. It was my uh, last year in seminary at graduate school. And uh, it came Thanksgiving time, one of these poverty stories that will make you cry. We didn't have enough money to go back to Philadelphia. So there we were. Mark said, don't worry. I'll make a Thanksgiving dinner. So she did. She actually got this. Now, we disagree here. I think it was a little chicken. She said, no, it was a turkey. But at any rate, it was too small to be away from its mother. Uh, and uh, and uh, she stuffed that to as much as she could get in both spoonfuls. Uh, and uh, and uh, we were uh, house parents to 13 Christian freshmen college students, which also was new. She grew up with a sister but did not have brothers. We shared the bath with five downstairs. This was all new to her. But at any rate, they'd all gone home and so she, we didn't have a big enough uh, table to put out but there was in her living room an end table and she draped a nice cloth over it and put all the vegetables. I was raised on a vegetable farm so she put all this out with this little stuffed chicken. And the uh, last thing was a surprise. In came a head of fresh cauliflower. And over top of it was a golden glow. I'd never seen that before. And, and I said, what is it? And she says, it's cheese. And she said, you'll like it. No, I said, I'm German. I know what I'll like. And I won't like that. She said, uh, how do you know? Now, they teach you in college critical thinking. When they give you a paper and there's a dot, comment on the dot, not the rest of the paper. But they forgot to say, not in marriage, you dummy. Uh, and 
So I went right ahead and I commented on the dot and I said that, geez, it looks like Sherman Williams paint over the whole world. Uh, and uh, she said, you'll like it. And I said, how do you know? Uh, uh, she asked me, how do you know you won't like it? And I gave the answer. You're supposed to think quickly, but not in marriage. See, think it yourself, but don't say it. I said, because my mother never did it that way. Well, she put it down and she said, pray for it. I said, I can't. She said, why? I said, because I'd be breaking the third commandment. It's not to take the name of the Lord for no purpose. And I'm not really happy about that. See? So whenever you pray for your food, look first. Uh, and God's name is Wunderbar. And this chapter tells about the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And Nebuchadnezzar is outside the city of Jerusalem. And he's got the whole thing surrounded. Momentarily, they lift the siege. And with it comes word from his relatives who didn't think too much of them. They said, this Jeremiah, our relative, I think he's gone wacko. Uh, and they try to put him away. So now they're in trouble, and their, their family plot is about to be taken. So what do they say? They say, you, according to Leviticus 25, have the right of redemption. Buy this land to keep it in the family. And that, of course, was not only his right, his duty. And the Lord had told him, your cousin Hanamel is going to come. Then verse 6, just as the word of the Lord said, verse 8, my cousin Hanamel came and he said, buy the field in Anathoth, which is only two miles north of Jerusalem. Now, certainly, from a standpoint of sales, this is a good time to buy because land is really depressed with a conqueror outside the city gates. <laughs> I would think land would be way down, way down. But from another standpoint, why would you buy if a conqueror is going to come in? Unless the promise that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David all along, that the land is mine, says the Lord. It's not the Arabs, it's not the Jews, it's mine. And I'm giving it to you so that you and all the nations might know that my plan my promise about the Messiah, my promise about the gospel in your seed, shall all nations of earth be blessed, and my promise about the land, so that I take one nation out of all the nations, so that you may know that I'm Lord of every nation. And that's what's happening here. And he said, when his cousin Hanamel came and said these exact words, he said, I knew. I knew it was the Word of God. Our God is wonderful in His Word, verses 1 through 15. Everything here revolves around the certainty and the power of the Word of God. Imagine God Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, gave us 66 books so that we might know Him, know His plan, know where history is going, know how it's going to conclude, 
and know that he's in charge. What a wonderful gift God has given to us. I like the Peanuts cartoon of years ago, still going. Joe Schultz, you know, had this sort of thing there. One day, uh, Charlie Brown had his nose pressed up against the window, and it's raining outside cats and dogs. Question. He asked of Linus, the blanket guy, little guy with the blanket. He's the resident theologian. And they asked him, they said, uh, do you think God will ever flood the earth again? And Lucy, amazingly, speaks up with, she's a pain in the neck generally, but she spoke up and she said, according to Genesis 9, God has promised as long as there's heat and cold in summer and winter, he'll never flood the earth again, uh, like he did in the days of Noah. And then it is, I think it was Charlie. Charlie gave the right words. He said, isn't it wonderful how sound theology takes a load off your mind? Sound theology takes a load off your mind. Yeah, good for you, Charlie Brown, because that's what this section says. Sound theology that comes from the lips and the mouth of God is true. In every respect, it's dependable. That's why verse 8 says, Then just as the Lord had said, the word of God came, and he said, I knew that this was the word of the Lord. The end of verse 8. So God is wonderful in his word. He does what other people think is too hard, too impossible. How can you call the shots on the future? How do you know where history is going? How do you know where the people of God will be? How do you know where Israel will be? How do you know what's going to happen to the land of Israel? And God said, because I am ordering it. I'm in charge. I am the Lord. But he's also wonderful in his person, too, because after this, verses 16 to 25, after he had bought the land and paid, uh, for it with, uh, they weighed out 17 shekels of silver. It had not yet come to coinage. They had not yet invented it. That will be invented just in a century over in Lydia in present-day Turkey. But he weighed this out, 17 shekels of silver, which uh, you'd have to multiply this out. But it wasn't very much, depending on how much uh, silver is pronounced the general standard last few years three to eight three to four dollars it would probably be twenty eight to thirty five dollars so he bought that land and then he prayed verse sixteen after I'd given the deed of purchase to Barak the son of Neriah I prayed all oh, sovereign Lord you made the heavens and the earth and in by your great power and outstretched hand nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too wonderful, too miraculous for you. And he gives in his prayer a veritable summary of theology. He goes from creation, God who made everything. He goes on to speak of God in his personality and his great power by which his purposes and his might are seen 
through the deeds that he has brought on earth. And then he goes on to speak of redemption and of the miracles of God in the history of Israel and the history of men and nations. And he demonstrates in his person what it means to have such an awesome God. We sing, and so we should. Our God is an awesome God. For he indeed just blows all the categories of everything we ever thought was sort of normative or limits. He exceeds and goes way beyond those. So he has done here for 25 years too as well. Think of where this was before there was anything here in Lindstrom. It was the sovereign hand of God that pulled all of you together and where he saw those who came to faith who would not have known about faith had it not been for the intervening hand of God. I tell you, our God is wonderful in his word. He's wonderful in his person. But thirdly, there is this God who is wonderful in his wrath too. Verse 26, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Do you think that I'm outclassed by North Korea? Do you think I'm outclassed by Afghanistan, Iran, and Iraq? Do you think I'm outclassed by Venezuela? The biblical text says, therefore, this is what the Lord said. I'm about to hand this city over to the Babylonians. God would hand to a pagan king and to a pagan nation, the nation of Israel. Why? He said, the Babylonians who are attacking the city will come in and set fire to it. They will burn it down along with the houses where the people provoked me to anger by burning incense on the roofs to Baal and by pouring out drink offerings to other gods. And not only outside, but the people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight. From their youth and day deed, the people of Israel have done nothing but provoke me with what their hands have made, declares the Lord. From the day it was built until now, this city has so aroused my anger and wrath that I must remove it from my sight. And the biblical text warns us that the same kind of standards used by the same God for nations and cities all over this planet. The people of Israel, he says, they have provoked me by the anger, they've, by the evil they've done. They, their kings and officials, their priests and prophets, the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, they turn their backs to me. Turn their backs to him. When they go to church and they love the nice benediction, smiley face theology, now may the Lord bless you. May the Lord make his countenance, his face, shine upon you. Really? And they've given the back, the cold shoulder. Moreover, they've set up abominable idols in the house that bears my name. In the house of God, in the temple itself, they have all sorts of things. Sun gods, animals they're now worshiping, and demons and spirits. And they built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnon to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Moloch. 
Malik was a picture as a big pot-bellied God with a big fire inside. His arms out so that his open mouth, they'd put the children in while the drums were beating and they were giving praise to Malik and to Baal and the babies wailing down, 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 boom, into the fiery cistern. They did that. And just outside, south of Jerusalem, in the valley, Ben Hinnon, they did. And why? Why? And how did God put up with that? Well, listen, since 1973, we've dropped 50 million in the United States in white buckets. And you don't think God's teed off? You don't think God is angry to death over a nation in which not to be sort of selective and to come down to only one or two items here, but you could just pick that alone? So why would we point the finger to these people who are taking their precious babies and watching them while screaming down into the fiery center of that god, Malak. Though God said, I never commanded it, nor did it even enter my mind, says God. Amazing. Amazing. Can God forgive? Yes. That's what the gospel's about. But must there be a turning? Yes. Yes. And now we argue about stem cell research. Oh, yeah, adult stem cell we've had success with. And praise God, it's a gift from God. But then to take this, which is egg, and uh, uh, bring the sperm together and fertilize them in a Petri dish, and then start selecting, and some we choose and some we don't. And anyway, we have had our worst success and hardly any promise at all from the stem cell research that comes out of the Petri dish, but not those that we get either from the umbilical cord of a baby or from adults. In both of those, there's a clear signal, and there's nothing morally that I know of that really runs counter to the Word of God. Does God care? Oh, yes. Does He love those babies? Yes. And does He love moms and dads who make the wrong decisions too? Yes. But they need to cry out to God and say, Lord God, I need your help. Stupid. Stupid. Please forgive. So our God is wonderful in His wrath. And I think the nations of the world have stirred up the wrath of God. I'm not a prophet. I don't have the prophetic gift. My father was a farmer, so I'm not a son of a prophet either. And I've worked all my life for nonprofit organizations. So can't can't spell either. But at any rate, uh, 
You don't have to be a prophet, though, to say, oh my, this is a tragedy. Why is it that we, as human beings made in the image of God, ever lost it? But we have. We've lost it. And that's just to take human life, one. What about the growing rate of suicide among young people and among older people, too? Seniors, both ends of the spectrum. We need God's very special help. But our God is wonderful in his promises, too. Not only is he wonderful in his word, wonderful in his person, wonderful in his wrath, but thank God the text ends on a happy note. He is wonderful in his promises, too. He gives six, seven promises like you would not believe. They're eye-popping. For he goes on to say, I want you to know nothing is too difficult. Nothing is too hard. God can do anything except sin and deny himself. So he goes on to say here, and brings it out beautifully, verse 36. You are saying about this city, by the sword, famine, and plague, it'll be handed over to the king of Babylon. But, but, says God, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. God will. Matter of fact, he is. He is. In Israel today, whereas the beginning of the last century, we could do it just in terms of a few 50 to 100,000 Jewish people. There are now over 6 million Jewish people in the land of Israel and growing. Not only from Russia, where 1.4 million Russian Jews came back home, but now America, 747s, 400s loaded to the hill, arrive almost daily with Americans who are Jewish making Aliyah and taking up residence there. God says, I'll return you back from your captivity, verse 36. And he goes on to say, I'll bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. In what? Safety? Doesn't seem like that's always the situation there. I remember we got in a tangle just on the last day of the Feast of Ramadan. Out they came from the Temple of the Mount, angry as could be. We obviously were Americans. My wife and I were trying to make our way, and the crowds got angry, started throwing over the stands there in the souks and grapefruit and oranges and everything started rolling in our feet, and we were in trouble. Uh, and uh, a man came alongside, and he said, what are you doing here? And he looked to me like, Ethiopian or something, and he said, put your hand on your wallet and follow me. And the opened up, and we went to a side street, and he said, leave this area and don't come back until it's empty. I took a few steps, and I turned around to see who it was. No one was there. Was that an angel? I don't know. But how we ever got out of that, I don't know. But God said, I'll bring them back in safety. 
and they will be my people and I'll be their God. That's part of the tripart promise plan of God. I'll be your God. You shall be my people and I'll pop ten, I'll tabernacle in the midst of you. And then he said, I'll give them singleness of heart and action. <laughs> Did you ever see that in a Jewish gathering? I went to a Jewish university. You get five people together, five Jewish people, and you'll have ten opinions. Uh, and uh, he said, I'll give them singleness of heart. Can you imagine? Here it is. And he said, I'll make an everlasting covenant with them. Ever, ever. I always get stuck on that word. Ever, ever, everlasting covenant with them. And I'll never stop doing good for them. Never, never. And I'll inspire them to fear me so that they'll never turn away from me. Israel, Jewish people, fearing God, never turning away. This is a new day. But God said that'll happen. He said, I don't believe it. <laughs> when it happens, remember, you heard it here first. Uh, and, and he said, verse 41, I'll rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land. And now the most unusual expression in the whole Bible, with all my heart and all my soul. <laughs> we say that to each other. I, I, I promise I'm going to do it. Across my heart, all my heart, all my soul. Now God says, all my heart and all my soul. I promise you. I promise you. So God's going to return to captivity. God's going to grant safety in the land. God's going to adopt them as his own people. And God's going to grant unity of purpose and inaugurate uh, everlasting covenant. And he's going to take pleasure. And this people that have been the most disobedient, God asked, why did I choose you people? Were you the largest? <laughs> they were the smallest. Were you the most obedient? No, they were the most disobedient. Well, then why did God choose them? <laughs> G-R-A-C-E, grace. Same grace that came to us. Same grace. So, what do you think? And what do I think is too difficult for God? Oh, you say, <laughs> I've got a couple nominations. Well, Lord said, you're wrong. Because you don't know my name. My name is wonderful. Wonderful. God can do anything except deny himself or fail. He is not slated for failure. So let's again call on his name, his trademark, his very being. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful, Jesus my Lord. He is the mighty king, master of everything, Jesus my Lord. No wonder the course goes on to say, kneel down, bow down before him, because he is majestic. So not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That was Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Wunderbar. Wonderful.
Do you know you had a Lord like that? That I have a Lord like that? And therefore this day I can cast all my care on him because he cares for me and he's able to take it. Take it to him in prayer. Let's pray together. Lord God, for this word and for this text and for the power of your person, we give you thanks and praise. Now for each heart that is here, some who silently said, oh, if only that were true for me. And it is. Help them by faith. Reach out and take hold of the God who says, 